And tonight we we turn back some 37 or more years uh, to the Vietnam War and America's participation in that war, which to be sure began long before Eisenhower committed the first American military and Kennedy intensified that. And before he was done with his term, we had uh, about 100,000 there, maybe it's about 35,000. Under Johnson, of course, we ultimately went to about 500,000 American military in Vietnam, two of whom are with me tonight. They are uh, Dr. Doug Bay, who is a psychiatrist in private practice these days in Normal, Illinois, and for a year or two, he was a major in uh, the Army, serving uh, as psychiatrist attached to the first division, the 1st Infantry Division, the Big Red One. Uh, our other veteran guest is Brian Mulcrone, who is president of the local chapter, uh, that's chapter 311 of the Vet Vietnam Veterans of America. He was drafted into the Army in November 1969, and he went to Vietnam in May of 1970 and served a little bit more than a year there, and they shot at him on occasion. Our third guest isn't old enough to have been a veteran, but his father was. Uh, his father, uh, the man I'm talking about is Tom Bissell, who's a noted young writer, novelist, travel writer, regular contributing editor to Harper's Magazine, and he's got a new book, not the first one he's written, titled The Father of All Things, A Marine, His Son, and the Legacy of Vietnam. The legacy of Vietnam resides essentially in the souls and the hearts and the minds of the veterans of Vietnam, and your father was one such. And you decided, or your editors approved the idea of their funding a trip by you and your dad back to Vietnam, a trip undertaken only a few years ago. This was in 2003, um, September 2003. It was a, a rather unforeseen thing. Uh, it was a dinner I had with a magazine editor who uh, wanted to know if I had any ideas, none of my ideas he was interested in. In the course of this dinner, I just started talking about my father, who's a man that looms over my life pretty profoundly and and I mentioned his Vietnam veteran status and uh, this the light bulb moment was with this editor looked at me and said we'll send you to Vietnam with your dad and um, that's that's how it came and my, my father was uh, absolutely raring to do it he was really excited to do it but in your life with him it had been an ambivalent relationship as father-son relationships often are but still a rather close one he had never talked much about Vietnam had he? actually he talked quite a bit about it but only when he uh, had a only when he was uh, in his cups. When he was lubricated. Uh, yeah, yeah, when he was uh, when he was tippled. Um, so I write in the book of an occasion of you know waking up at four in the morning and my father is sitting on the edge of my bed, in tears, reliving some awful moment and and how. Uh, my dad was a, a veteran who no one would have really looked at him and thought this is the ramshackle John Rambo esque kind of veteran. This popular idea that we have of Vietnam veteran is based on almost nothing. But that said, the closer you get to a lot of veterans within their sort of emotional blast radius, you know, you, you begin to see the damage that it did to a lot he of He was them. a Marine lieutenant, and they, his outfit was in very active combat for quite a while. Yes, he was in combat support, and uh, he was picked on and shot at a lot. Uh, Doug Bay, as a psychiatrist, you were rendering psychiatric service to yes. uh, frontline troops, so to speak, in the 1st Division, which has always been a get up to the front and start shooting kind of division. Uh, a former commander, a later commander of, of the 1st Division is a friend of ours, David Grange, yes. who is now the head of the Tribune uh, Philanthropy Organization, and he commanded them in former Yugoslavia, particularly in the Kosovo campaign. 
Uh, and obviously, they have a great reputation and a great tradition they want to live up to, at least their officers want the men to live up to it, of getting in there and engaging in combat heavily and fiercely. But sure. that must have produced a lot of trauma. Well, yes, we saw uh, a number of patients um, <clears throat> who were brought to us on the outside of a helicopter strapped between uh, two stretchers. And you'd see the arm and the leg sticking out of the stretchers, and uh, usually we'd inject uh, whatever was available uh, and then uh, sedate these uh, individuals overnight and uh, rehydrate them and, and uh, return them to duty. These so were that the, was the psychiatric treatment they got? The, this was the acute uh, stress reaction, one night they called it then. One yeah. night of sedation? That was about it for the, for the acute uh -huh. cases like that. We saw the whole gamut of psychiatric disorders. And later on, we tried to go out to the units and consult and uh, see if we could find, uh, relieve some of the stresses, identify some of the high-risk individuals and, and some of the high-risk periods yeah. in the, in the uh, units. It's now almost 32 years since that last helicopter took off from the embassy roof in Saigon. That was April 30th, 1975. Uh, you're with Vietnam veterans all the time, Brian Mulcrone, and you are one yourself. Uh, what overall attitude is sort of shared consensually by your veteran friends as they look back to the war? I think there's a legitimate concern that the, the period, that period in our nation's history was very tumultuous. And at the time we were serving overseas, we probably thought that there was not the same level of support that we were entirely deserving of at the time. And as a consequence, there was a, a sense of, great sense of, of loss when we watched the final exodus from Vietnam in 1975. The question that came up time and time again is for what purpose? After all this, all the time and all the money and all the people. Um, Tom's book talks about this to a great extent in the personal narrative of his father describing it. But uh, it's, a, it's a sense I think that is felt by my generation of veterans. And to a certain extent, it's a question that will always remain out there for any veteran who serves and comes back and has to look over their shoulder. When you sit around with the other members of the local chapter 311 of Vietnam Veterans of America, that's the Chicago region chapter, I guess. When you sit around with those guys, uh, is the general view that it was a waste, we shouldn't have been there? No, not a sense of, not a, not a sense of waste. Um, but the, the motives perhaps have always been questioned. Why we went, why we were there, uh, was it for for the sake of um, national national need, or were there other motives that put us in Southeast Asia at that time and place? And what answer comes through? Well, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of doubt that uh, that uh, that we there probably is a, some a lot of misunderstandings because we were not perhaps. Uh, schooled in, 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 in the underlying motives for the, our presence in Southeast Asia. Some people will say we were living up to the uh, aspects of the CEDAW Treaty, defending a, a, a nation state that was under siege. Um, there probably were some economic interests that were that prevailed that had influence on the, the national decision makers at the time in our country in the 1960s. But people who served there are proud of their service because they they have a sense that they they stood up, they took an oath, they they held they held a line, and ultimately that was an important uh, part of our republic's history. 
um, our parents had done it earlier, another generation, they had won decisively. Um, I think also there's a circumstance, there's a belief that uh, to a certain extent the, the Vietnam period, the hands were tied by um, political decisions on the military. Uh, there's a lot of micromanagement that apparently has went on and has been evident now in some of the revelations that have come out in the last probably 20 years. There's a view that is expressed by some uh, who look back on it, particularly through sort of conservative colored glasses, uh, who argue that we had basically really won that war, or we were winning it, but the government held our troops back and did not uh, allow itself to do the final blow, which would have been bloody and might have involved bombing Hanoi and so on. And if we had been fully committed, we essentially had that war won, we could have cleaned up, but we, we faltered and didn't follow through. Well, I think General uh, Abrams was doing a, a better job uh, uh, near the end with the uh, interdiction and uh, trying to uh, uh, get rid of the VC infrastructure that supplied the NBA. And there was a feeling that things were going better at the end. Uh, even the Tet uh, offensive, I think we did better than the, uh, in terms of uh, killing the enemy. It was seen in this country as it was interpreted journalistically as a great defeat yes. when in fact militarily it was a victory. Yes. Um, but uh, uh, I, you know, and I wondered at the time too if perhaps the terrorists have learned something, think they learned something from Vietnam that if they just draw out a conflict long enough and kill enough soldiers that the public opinion will eventually cause us to pull yeah. out. The thing that sticks most in my memory, because I was not in Vietnam, but I was much involved in the issue. Indeed, I did a book about it uh, at the time, which was a, an anti-Vietnam War book, um, interpreting American public opinion as opposed to the Vietnam War. It was titled, Vietnam and the Silent Majority. Uh, Nixon said the silent majority favored the war. And I and, uh, and Sid Verba, my colleague, he a political scientist, I, social psychologist, examined all of the available public opinion data and saw that it was very clear that the silent majority was being silent, but they were silent in opposition rather than in endorsement of yeah. the Vietnam War. And we did a book which said that and argued against the continuation of the war. Uh, but what really sticks in memory, and this must have been clearly in your father's reaction, Tom, as well, was... Uh, how angry the American public was and how negative the American public was towards the continuation of that war. And for the first time ever uh, in our military history, when the veterans came back, they were treated with disdain and with rejection rather than with a normal welcoming embrace. I think that the, one of the things that embittered a lot of men like my father and, and created a very difficult emotional context to speak to their feelings about what they had gone through was the, the sense of uh, having something to feel ashamed about about their service in Vietnam. And a World War II veteran uh, had any number of uh, ultimate sources of consolation to use to deal with the incredibly awful carnage that many of the World War II veterans had seen. And a Vietnam veteran, I do not think, had anywhere near the same amount of uh, emotional pillows to recline on, you know, when, when trying to deal with what they'd gone through. And, and I think my father was incredibly embittered about that. And, and uh, to this day, you know, has a lot of 
uh, resentment toward people who protested the war from what he would call a point of dishonor. Mm. Although he now has accepted that you know you could oppose the war from a point of honor. And, yeah. and but um, I think it was it was a huge problem for him, and and it has been a huge problem for a lot of veterans. I remember going to the American Psychiatric Association after I got back. And many of my colleagues uh, referred to those of us who served as uh, Nazi doctors or uh, technists, that we were supporting a corrupt military organization. And uh, this made us feel somewhat defensive and yet uh, also a little guilty. You know, that sounds rather like the American Psychiatric Association today <laughs> with regard to the Iraq war, doesn't it? Yeah, I suppose, yeah. Uh, we are overdue for some commercials, as I knew we would be. Uh, but I want to let me just put something to you for you to think about for a few minutes as we uh, take those commercials. You know that Sam Huntington of Harvard, who is more or less the source of the theory about the clash of civilizations, is much quoted these days with regard to uh, the West versus Islam, or rather Islam versus the West. Uh, that is, his thesis is that there are some incontrovertible and unbridgeable differences in what the Germans call Weltanschauung, in the view of the world, so that the cultures just don't jibe, and that tends to make for uh, strangely fought wars, wars that fought all the more ineffectually, more bitterly, more tragically, than if Europeans are fighting Europeans, say. Uh, was the same true in Vietnam? Was that a clash of cultures? Let's talk about that when we return after this. Some thoughts and memories about the Vietnam War, and ultimately perhaps some analysis and perhaps even some comparison between that war and the, uh, the war we are presently engaged upon. My guests tonight are Tom Bissell, uh, a well-established young writer who is the author most recently of a book titled The Father of All Things, A Marine and His Son and the Legacy of Vietnam. That is just published by Pantheon. And Dr. Doug Bay joins us as well. Uh, he is U.S. Army a major U.S. Army retired in the medical sector of the U.S. Army, served as a psychiatrist uh, in Vietnam, uh, servicing the men of the Big Red One, the 1st Infantry Division. He is also the author of a recently published book titled Wizard Six, a combat psychiatrist in Vietnam. I'll ask you in a moment to explain that title. And our third guest, Brian Mulcrone, doesn't have a book that he's done this month, I think, uh, <laughs> but is president of the local chapter of the Vietnam Veterans of America. He was drafted into the Army in November 69 and left for Vietnam about a year later. Uh, these days you work essentially in information, information technology. technology. Yeah. Um, and uh, Doug Bay, uh, the meaning of your book, Wizard Six, the meaning of the title. That was my call name in Vietnam. I was the division wizard. Yeah. That's how they referred to the psychiatrist. And I was the head psychiatrist, so I was six. Mm -hmm. So Wizard Six was my call name. It's a, it's a good nom de guerre. <laughs> well, um, I put a thesis to you. There's this kind of a cultural incompatibility between us and them way back then. Does that strike well, you as relevant? I, yes, and reading Tom's book, I, I was struck by that, 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 how little we actually understood about the Vietnamese. Uh, we didn't really understand them as, as a culture. And uh, in the medical area, one of the things we did uh, was we conducted MedCAPs. Uh, these were uh, medical civic action program. 
and we went out to villages and uh, would take care of the uh, uh, local population. Mm -hmm. And as doctors, we... And that's winning hearts and minds. That's the idea, yeah. yeah. And so uh, as, as doctors, we thought, well, we're going to be practicing medicine, and this is closer to what we trained to do, and, and we'd be helping someone, and we thought it would be a nice humanitarian activity. What we learned was that uh, it was a very little medical value. We would, we would go out with a couple of interpreters and we would see one patient after another, usually no male, young male patients anyway. And uh, uh, the common problems were tuberculosis and uh, dysentery and malaria. And we would prescribe medications. And uh, as we were leaving the area, we'd see the uh, patients trading pills by color, give them three red ones for a blue one or something. And then later on, if they captured a VC uh, hospital or medical installation, we'd find all of our equipment that we had, uh, the drugs and the uh, instruments that we'd uh, given to the uh, uh, Vietnamese. Um, the, uh, probably the only, uh, and we learned that our, the purpose of the MedCaps really was to gather intelligence that our intelligence officers were in there. We had uh, some armored carriers that would come along with us, our armored personnel carriers and a platoon of infantrymen that would guard us sort of while we were doing these midcaps. And uh, the local prostitutes would ride up in a bicycle and uh, conduct their profession in the back of the APCs while we were uh, trying to take care of the population. And I, I remember looking out of the window of one of the schoolhouses where we had the clinic and seeing these guys lined up and behind the APC with the prostitutes inside and thinking uh, that this is sort of a uh, uh, captured the, what was going on in Vietnam. On one end, we're trying to treat them medically, and on the other, we're uh, taking advantage of them. That sort of suggests, doesn't it, Brian Mokron, that uh, there was a cultural incompatibility, not, not only between the American forces and the enemy, but between the American forces and their Vietnamese allies. Certainly, one of the uh, unfortunate aspects of the of of the of the service at that time was um, we were probably exposed to an awful lot of. We were trying to depersonalize the enemy, and we looked down our noses. There was the tradition of name calling that would go on, as had we've. We've used in previous wars, you know, when World they, War One. They were gooks, G double that's a that's a Korean term, but it transferred to to to, to Vietnam, um, and as a consequence, you began looking at the entire populace because it was not discernible who was friendly and who was not, um, and you could you could lapse into a, an easy path of of just looking at looking down your nose at everybody, but there's a there were times when you had a lesson learned, and I learned my lesson relatively early in my tour. I was in the country about three months, and I was still a PFC, I believe, or spec four, and I wasn't making very much money. And we had uh, hooch maids that used to do the laundry every day, and um, they would take the laundry out and they'd beat it on rocks and hang it up to dry, and, uh, and they were being paid in, uh, in military script that was converted to their currency. And right after payday, I discovered that all my money was gone. And I was I would be broke for like the next 25 days, and I was you know going into catonic shock. You know how can you how can you survive if you the few pittance the the little that I had was all gone, and I searched all over my 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 area and could not find the money. And the following day, when the hooch maids came back, there were two of them, 
and uh, I mentioned that they, I, I was suspect of everybody, and I mentioned this to the two hooch maids, and they beckoned me outside, and as they had done the laundry the day before, the, the, the pocket of bills that I had inside my blouse, my, my, my jacket, had fallen to the ground underneath everybody else's uniform. They didn't know who owned this, this, this pile of bills. There weren't that many bills, but it was significant for me. And they buried it in a coffee can right underneath the, the clothesline because they were scared that they'd lose their jobs if they were caught as thieves. And when I identified my loss to them, they came back, and sure enough, in the coffee can was the billfold, all the money, and the same rubber band I had bound it in. And I, I was taken back because of their their honesty and, you know, the, this revelation that uh, these are plain folks, these are real people. And from that point forward, um, I had a, I was treating people differently. I had to because I was it was a life lesson. What were your father's reflections, uh, Tom Bissell, on his encounters with Vietnamese back in the days of the war? Well, my father always believed that the Marines had probably the closest regular contact with the Vietnamese of any of the branches of the service. And um, my father uh, had some friends uh, who you know, were South Vietnamese rangers. He thought very highly of uh, his South Vietnamese ranger friends. But for the most part, I think he, like a lot of soldiers, regarded the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, the South Vietnamese, as um, pretty much worse than useless in combat for the most part. And um, because the corruption was such a huge problem in the South, uh, South Vietnam. Uh, basically, if you were an officer, you got that because you paid someone to become an officer. The, well, the, the uh, enlisted men, off, many of them were very tough, very strong, very good soldiers. Their officer class was practically worthless, you know. And, and he uh, quickly discovered that whenever he shared any information with uh, his Arvin counterpart, counterpart um, they would get ambushed that day. And uh, this happened far too often to be a coincidence. So uh, pretty soon. He uh, he and a lot of uh, his fellow Marines just stopped sharing information with uh, his South Vietnamese counter with their South Vietnamese counterparts. This sure, certainly did not help, you know, the the the, the effort. Now, when you've been back more recently, uh, what does the culture and what do the people of Vietnam look like to you these days? Do you feel that there's easy and real human contact, or is there still? kind of a cultural divide. No, I, I, I love Vietnam as much as any place on this planet. Uh -huh. I've had, I think it's probably my favorite country in the world. Why is that? Um, it's a place that is absolutely beautiful, for one. Uh, the culture is an extremely gentle and <coughs> uh, formal culture. It's a culture that values things like uh, intelligence and uh, you know one's elders and things like that. It's the formalities of the culture are very beautiful, and I find it's it's um, the, the the Buddhism and Confucianism of its uh, of the vast majority of its population. I find very uh, sort of compelling. I'm not a religious person myself, but. Um, I do find Confucianism and Buddhism as sort of mostly non-supernatural approaches to the world are very interesting. With so, a real reverence for life. With a you. very reverence for life. Yet, but, and yet, they, during the war, they were some of the most... They were utterly Tolstoyan. And they were quite ready to sacrifice. Absolutely, absolutely yeah. brutal during the war. It's true. And um, my best friend in Vietnam is a guy whose father was a colonel in the Viet Cong. Uh -huh. And I've spent many meals, many days with him. Uh, he's a wonderful man.
it's kind of like my Vietnamese father, and he and my father probably, you know, tried to kill each other since they were active in the same mm -hmm. area during the war. And uh, my friend's father basically says, we'll not back down from the position that you wanted to conquer our country, and you wanted to control us just like the French did, and there was no convincing him otherwise. And he was not a communist. In fact, he was re-educated after the war because the uh, he, was a, he was in the Viet Cong, but he was not a, a party member. He was a nationalist. And so uh, he has been uh, re-educated, and yet he still refuses to see the war from the perspective of, of, of anything other than we were foreign power trying to exploit them. This current war has its Abu Ghraib, which is uh, a monstrosity and which is symbolic of our troops going wrong. Uh, that war had its My Lai, which had equal symbolic import. Mm. And uh, how does one account for My Lai? And how much My Lai-like activity was there on the part of our troops? Uh, I would like to pursue that with you, as if we may, directly after we go to the newsroom and we return to Brian Mulcrone, uh, Sergeant Mulcrone, uh, to Major Doug Douglas Bay, uh, MD, um, and uh, formerly psychiatrist attached to the 1st Infantry Division, and Tom Bissell, uh, a noted young novelist and uh, general nonfiction writer as well, whose previous books include Chasing the Sea, Lost Goats of Empire in Central Asia, and God Lives in St. Petersburg and Other Stories, and now the new book, The Father of All Things, A Marine, His Son, and the Legacy of Vietnam. Uh, let's talk about My Lai. Actually, you've got a, a section of the book devoted to that. There's a long section uh, about My Lai that my father and I went to, and my father is actually friends with Captain Ernest Medina, who mm. was the captain of uh, the, um, the unit within the Marical Division that carried out the attacks. And you'd asked before the break how... You know, how often did this happen and why did this happen? Yep. And I think it's a very easy explanation. <laughs> that particular AmeriCal itself was plagued with discipline problems, they, and they were terribly led. And uh, Medina and Cali, the two officers who were most directly responsible, just did nothing to provide any kind of moral leadership for these soldiers. But that, So that was not unique? Within that division, or for that matter, within the whole I, the, 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 the scale of it was, it was unique. What, um, was the, what was the scale? What, what was the final 500, toll? About 500 people. 500 Vietnamese exterminated by? Uh, all of them unarmed. Villagers. Uh, villagers. Uh, yeah. uh, 100 of them were under the age of 10. Yeah. And, uh, you know, several dozen rapes throughout the whole thing. Captain Kelly served how much time on that? Uh, I think he served about a year total. Whatever happened to him afterwards? Do we know? He's a jeweler. He lives in Ohio. Is that a fact? Yeah. I would be a little bit... Uh, defensive um, regarding this, the incident, because I served with the 23rd Infantry Division, the AmeriCal. <laughs> oh, whoops. <laughs> and um, in, the, um, in the period that, that led up to the, the tragedy, um, the unit that uh, was led by Captain Medina with his um, platoon leader, Lieutenant Kelly, they were in a, an area that was always very hotly contested by the National Liberation Front. I think it's the Batang Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And um, the unit had undergone a lot of casualties. So their, I think their state of mind, uh, in deference to what Doug might contribute here, they were, they were fraught with anxiety and probably fear and, and anger. Um, and, and things tragically snapped. And I, I think that... Uh, Unfortunately, these incidents happen when people are put in circumstances like that mm -hmm. in any armed conflict in more than one location. 
not just yeah. limiting. limiting well, to uh, let me. I, I apologize for 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 if if there was any. I didn't mean to be sound flippant, and we no. should acknowledge that obviously on all sides of the Vietnam War. I mean, the, the communists in Hue killed 4,000 people. And I, th I think it's hard for uh, people here to understand uh, perhaps a situation in a combat area. Um, I, I think it's you know difficult for us to sit back here and judge uh, people who are uh, in a combat area where they're frightened, and maybe they've seen their uh, buddies killed. Uh, we had in the clearing station sometimes we would have both uh, Vietnamese uh, prisoners and also American soldiers that we were t caring for and sometimes had to restrain the Americans from uh, attacking the uh, uh, Vietnamese prisoners that were there. And uh, as doctors we just tried to focus on the uh, illness and not on uh, the nationality or the patient. but. But uh, these guys had just been in a situation where they'd seen someone killed. There was also, I think, the atmosphere in Vietnam was crazy. Uh, uh, you know, the apocalypse now, I think, captured some of the uh, craziness uh, that was over there. For example, there was a fellow in our uh, division came over and, and wanted to be in the division. He was a dentist. And uh, so I talked to the division surgeon, and they said, sure. I mean, it wasn't difficult to get into the division. It was difficult to, <laughs> you know, get out of the division. And uh, so this fellow came over, and everybody liked him. He was uh, had a good sense of humor and got along well with the docs. Uh, but he was became soon apparent that he was somewhat strange. He wanted to uh, be inserted into hot areas with a cable so that he could drill teeth under fire. And he was ministering to these combat troops, and you know, God knows why. And uh, he started hanging out with the long-range reconnaissance guys. And uh, so one night, about three months after he was in country, he was sitting around probably smoking dope, with these guys. Anyway, uh, one of them said, you look kind of down, Doc. He said, what seems to be the problem? He said, well, I've been here three months. I haven't killed anybody. He said, you want to kill somebody? He said, well, yeah, I didn't come to Vietnam to just drill teeth. So they let him, they took him out reportedly and let him uh, kill someone. Now this, I mean, this is absolutely insane. But uh, this is the kind of stuff that Did happened. Did Vietnam drive him insane, or was was he insane before he got I there? I think there was a little predisposition. I would think so, yeah. yeah. There's also, a, I think, a, one on, another understanding we have to have is that the number of people that were in the rear, people like the doctor and the dentist, and even people like myself, you know, the ratio was about 12 or 15 people in the rear supporting every person who was in a, in a, literally in a combat unit which would have been traditionally infantry, artillery, armor, or even aviation. So there's there's this huge number of people that were in the, in the rear, and um, the fighters were not engaged every day during their tour. They were in, they were rotated out. So understanding the, the nature of that, you know, sustained combat operations can, can put you at the edge. And... One of the things which is so unique today about the conflict that we're witnessing in Southwest Asia is the exposure of people in the rear to the mayhem that goes on. In Vietnam, people in the combat bases in the rear or in, in combat support, general support, were not exposed to the threats. 
and did not see the 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 wreck and ruin and the, the carnage like the young people and even the the guardsmen and the reservists are seeing today mm -hmm. in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Now any cafe you're sitting in can, can blow up. But any when, car passing well, by. Well, and, and the types of wounds. Uh, the right. Australians in Vietnam had a morale problem initially because there were mines in their area and they were uh, their soldiers were getting these horrendous wounds from the explosives uh -huh. and it, it was a morale problem. And but otherwise, we didn't see that type of wound that much. But I think this is something that's happening in Iraq. Flying jagged metal. Yes. Exploded. On terrible, the terrible wounds. Yeah. But I'd like to talk about the, the me life thing one more time about the the, the, the combat stuff is abs absolutely the, the, the frayed nerves. But the uh, the me life guys had only been in country for three months and most of the guys in that and the, and the two units that did it did not take place and did not take part in the killing and so i really do think that it was a kind of general breakdown of discipline amongst just a relatively small group of people with no one who was willing to step in and stop it before. well what i was wondering was how much how many other mini me lives occurred to what degree was that sort of breakdown of discipline and that uh, release of rage against civilians to what degree was that a not uncommon experience when I got in country, the docs gave me some uh, theories as to how we could win the war. Uh -huh. One was that uh, they had divided the cost of the war by the number of NVA killed, and they came up with a figure of $75,000 per NVA. So there, one theory was that they would fly over the countryside with uh, bags containing $50,000 worth of quarters. Every time they saw a Vietnamese, they'd drop one of these bags. If they hit them, they'd kill them and save 25000 If they missed them, the guy would retire. Either way, they <laughs> got rid of a fighter for 25000 savings. Another theory was to put all the friendly Vietnamese on boats, uh, kill everybody else that was left, and then sink the boats. Uh, you probably heard that. A bit harsh. <laughs> But but I mean there was there was this kind of uh, attitude you know. Well, that's the bitter humor of yeah. war. Yeah, sure. But to what degree did our troops regress to that sort of savagery? That's the basic question I'm pushing. I think it would be less our troops than any troops. Um, yeah. I think the, the officer uh, Neil Sheen's book, A Bright Shining Light, takes pains mm -hmm. to point out that the officer class in Vietnam was probably the, among the best trained, most disciplined, most intelligent. Mm -hmm. uh, group of American officers ever put into the field. The problem was that the mag the enormity of the problem that they were facing in Vietnam was was not something that was going to be solved by winning a lot of battles. You know, it was a much more complicated, difficult situation. So I, I have to think that the, the Nilai kinds of atrocities happened a lot more seldom than than the common understanding would be. That would be my guess. I, I don't. I would disagree with you. Uh, I would agree with uh, you on the point that the officer class was, was talented, they were versatile. Um, many of them had been seasoned in, uh, in Korea, in the middle grades, um, the junior officers. I, I served with, with excellent officers. I had great respect for them and their judgment. They were considerate and they oftentimes put their, their men ahead of their own needs uh, to their credit. And I think that the, that their like I said earlier, there there probably were um, had likely there were circumstances, but I don't think the the the, the sense of many many me lies occurred. Uh, 
there was just the the opportunity to to hold that secret was just not there. It would it would it would leak out just as the um, the the major incidents did. There were just too many. There'd be too many witnesses. People would talk, and and eventually, you know, they, they would be found out, and there'd be an investigation, and there would be pursuit, and there would be some sense of justice that would be following them. I, I was actually saying I, I don't think it happened very often either. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, just so, uh, I'm wondering, and I put this question directly to Dr. Bay, though we have to defer for three minutes before we get your answer. Uh, what is, are the long-range psychological or psychiatric consequences for Vietnam veterans? To what degree have they been psychologically injured or psychologically burdened in a way that still persists to their present lives 35 or so years after? We return directly to Dr. Douglas Bay, to Brian Mulcrone, and to Tom Bissell after these words. And we return to Brian Mulcrone, to Dr. Douglas Bay, and to Tom Bissell. And Dr. Bay, directly to you. Uh, are there some burdens carried by veterans of that war all these years later? I'm sure that uh, many uh, who were in intensive combat do still carry the burdens and still have the dreams and still uh, are reacting. Um, there, there is some correlation between uh, uh, the officer corps and the higher educated uh, men ha seem to have less PTSD in the long in the long run. Less what? Uh, Post traumatic stress disorder. Uh, the, there, I was just talking to Tom briefly uh, during the intermission. The there was a project. Uh, 100,000 by McNamara. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but this population, uh, <coughs> we saw a number of these uh, guys in, in psychiatry, and the psychiatrists all over Vietnam reported that a high percentage of their uh, referrals came from this group. Um, the, the Secretary McNamara came up with this idea of in, uh, allowing 100,000 men per year to be inducted who did not meet the intellectual uh, induction standards uh, and their IQ was below the induction standards. And the idea was that they would be given jobs as truck drivers or cooks assistants or uh, simple uh, mundane jobs, I guess, that uh, they could perform in the Army and then would be able to have these skills later on to get jobs when they got out of the service plus benefits. Um, the problem was that at that time there was an escalation in the in the war and there was a need for troops. So 150,000 of these guys were trained as riflemen, 100,000 were sent to Vietnam, and they were killed at twice the rate of the other soldiers. In addition, as I say, a lot of these guys were the guys that got into trouble and were referred to mm. uh, psychiatry and ended up being uh, discharged in, uh, under less than honorable circumstances, so they didn't get the benefits. And this is a population of about 366,000 men who probably have a high risk or high rate of PTSD and, and yet don't have the benefits. One of the great casualties, I suppose, psychological casualties of that war was Secretary McNamara himself, or at least he so represented himself. Uh, he was on this program Oh, a few years ago when he did that last book of his in which he uh, says we were wrong, we were terribly wrong and we didn't have the proper advice and we shouldn't really have been in the war or we shouldn't have fought it the way we fought it. 
uh, it was all, many people thought that he was sort of weeping crocodile tears. There was something rather odd about his performance. Mm. It was seen on television. Uh, but he wept those tears for me as well uh, in, on a, in a radio, a taped radio interview, which I then played uh, for a panel of people. One of them was David Halberstam, played it on the air. Uh, and Halberstam was very uh, skeptical and rather contemptuous oh. uh, of what McNamara was up to now, saying he knew perfectly well what was going on then, and this is these are crocodile tears. Well, this was a, certainly a failed program, uh, this Project 100,000, yeah. and these guys got the short end of the stick. But you could say that, more broadly, our whole involvement in that war was a failed program. Yes. Though one is haunted by the thought that if it had been played otherwise, we might really have won. Whether winning would have had any great advantage in terms of what happened in the world after that, I don't know. Well, one thing that would have happened is, or would not have happened, is the genocide worked by the uh, the Cambodian government, the, yeah. the, uh, the Khmer Rouge, once they took Cambodia, the genocide they worked on their own people, where they destroyed one quarter to one third of their own domestic population. Which the Vietnamese stopped. The Vietnamese came in and finally stopped it yeah. and sent them back to the jungle. Uh, we are shortly going to pause for an update on the news, and then we will be going directly to the phone with a quick reintroduction of our guests, and then we'll go directly to the phones. Those guests are. Tom Bissell, uh, whose new book is in a way the center of our, or at least the occasion for our elaborating this program around it tonight. That new book is titled The Father of All Things, A Marine, His Son, and the Legacy of Vietnam. It's just published by Pantheon Books. Dr. Douglas Bay is our guest as well. He was a psychiatrist attached to the 1st Infantry Division in uh, Vietnam during a crucial year of that war. And he is the author of his own Vietnam memoir titled Wizard Six, a combat psychiatrist in Vietnam. That is just published by Texas A&M Press. And Brian Mulcrone is with us as well. He is president of the local chapter of the Vietnam Veterans of America. And with that, we go directly to the phones. 591-7200, you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening, sir. Uh, I've got a couple of observations uh, tempered by I was an uh, infantry platoon leader with the 1st Cav from uh, September of 67 to February of 68. Mm -hmm. And we worked roughly in the area, a lot of the time, near My Lai, out southwest of Da Nang. And what I noticed relating to the My Lai thing was that when I went through officer candidate school, they turned handstands to put us under pressure. We spit-shined our floors. Middle of the night, we'd be hauled out, crawl up through a creek, everything they could to exert pressure. And late in our cycle, as it was called, they needed officers so bad that they re relaxed the standards dramatically. And I, firmly, I believe that uh, Lieutenant Kelly went through officer school at that point in time and my hunch is that he and perhaps others would have well washed out, quit, etc., cetera, uh, and never had made it to Vietnam. Because the thing is our troops in Iraq now have of everybody looks the same until they pull a weapon on you. And day in, day out, you're getting sniped at, bombs, etc. So that's my comment on that one. The other one related to, I think, what 
the doctor said earlier about um, the PTSD and age education. I was a college graduate, 24 years old, and had been around much of the world. I have dreams all the time now, and it's better than Rambo. I make him look silly. Mm -hmm. But I think... Do you wake up screaming, or are they pleasurable yeah, dreams? No, they're great. I, I, I'm the... the the, you know, the great warrior, mm -hmm. but uh, never, ever, even, I was wounded, and even uh, in Japan, three days later, um, not, I didn't get scared, I had no, none of the nightmares, but I, I again, I really think it related to the age educational aspect. Gentlemen, your response to this interesting contribution. Well, there have been some studies recently that supported just what you said. And uh, I have some friends also who were in quite a bit of combat uh, in Vietnam, and they seem to have made a good adjustment. We thank you, sir, for the call. Glad thank to have you, heard sir. from you. And we'll proceed quickly to another. 591-7200 is the number. And you are the next caller. Good evening. Yes, hello. Yes, sir. A comment on the uh, what you were talking about the Tet Offensive. Uh, I remember well. I was there and uh, had about six weeks to go on my tour. What, and, what was uh, your What was your assignment exactly? I was a, a squad leader. Uh, we were attached to the first camp. Mm -hmm. I was a demolition specialist. Uh, had a patrol out when it broke out, and uh, it was pretty hairy for a few weeks. They were shooting at you, were they? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, it was going on, uh, you know, I was in the Central Highlands, and yeah. there wasn't a spot that was safe in the, all of, uh, pretty much all of South Vietnam. But some things went wrong with the uh, with the whole thing, because they were they thought that the South Vietnamese people, the civilians, would rise up and support them, which they did not. Some bad intelligence on their part. But the interesting thing was, after I got home on the 16th of March, I, that's where I think the, uh, I, I think that the press should take a lot of responsibility for what happened. Because when I got home, everyone treated it like we were, it was a big defeat. And, and uh, it was a little bit more lopsided than what you people thought. It was like uh, they, by their own admission, years later, lost about 60,000 men to our 5,000 by the time that offensive was uh, declared officially over. Some interpreters are looking back on it have said that the man who declared the defeat and made it a defeat was Walter Cronkite. Uh, may have been. May have been. because The of, leading uh, television he, newsman at the time, the whole country listened with great trust to Uncle Walter, and he definitely interpreted it as a defeat. Yes, well, he did. One of, the, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the points that was made in Tom's book, which I, I found uh, to be very fascinating, was the, uh, the circumstance of Tet was that it broke the back of the National Liberation Front, uh, the, the indigenous uh, Vietnamese uh, supporters of, uh, of the North, or mm -hmm. unification of the North and the South. They were, they were forced or moved into a commitment and they took the brunt of the uh, of the losses, not the the People's Army of, of Vietnam, but the the locals. And uh, it was uh, a long time after '68 before they recovered enough to uh, be a um, a threat as they were in 1967 and '68. It also caused a huge division between uh, the party leadership in Hanoi and the um, and the uh, the Viet Cong leadership in, in South Vietnam which did not always get along and which had, uh, exactly. at, at times, they often were working at, at, uh, at loggerheads. But I would say the media's response to the Tet Offensive, uh, a lot of the, the, the surprise and shock with which the media reported it, I think what, what sometimes is forgotten is, is the confidence with which progress had been 
uh, was being announced in, in Vietnam for months ahead of this. And uh, Westmoreland, in fact, only a week before the Tenth Offensive commenced, basically had predicted that things were going so well and that progress had never been better. Now, we now know that Johnson had pressured him into saying this, but the fact was it was the, the, the disconnect between the optimism shown by the military and the fact that this enemy who we were being told was on, uh, literally on its last breaths was, in fact, capable of a nationwide assault that was a complete surprise and was superbly planned. However, it wasn't very well enacted. They got their, 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 you know, they had them theirs handed to them, uh, obviously, in, in the various sub-battles around. But the enactment of it was so horrifying and I think so shocking to so many people that that was the, was the psychological fact that, that we are being told that these people are, are, are whipped and yet every single city in the South was just attacked in force. And I think that is what uh, was the truly shocking thing. Well, the key thing, they, they didn't really hold any city for very long. They held that compound in Saigon for a matter of, what, minutes? Not even a, an hour or so away they held for quite a while. But uh, I, I, what I, the, the thing I thought was interesting was Abrahams asked for that 200,000 men that were in the pipeline. He asked Johnson, he said, if, you, if I get that 200,000 men that were waiting to come over, we can pretty well push this thing all the way back north and, and, and hurt them really bad. Johnson went to his advisors. They said, no, don't send them. The American people won't stand for it. And it wasn't too many days after that he came on the uh, network and said, I will not seek, nor will, uh, will I accept if uh, asked mm -hmm. you know, to take the nomination. I thought that was quite interesting that the Tet Offensive even stopped his prospects as far as re uh, running for president again. As you were on the way home, when they finally put you back on a boat, what was your attitude towards the Vietnam War? And does that coincide with your attitude today? Say that again, sir? Well, when you were done with the experience and you were shipped back home, what was your attitude about whether it had been worth fighting? And do you hold the same attitude today? No, I was pretty angry when I come home because I thought that, that we were, we failed because of, of, you know, the people sent us over there and then were asking us what we were doing there. That's the way I felt. Mm -hmm. You know, that the mission was not accomplished and then it was years later I got to thinking, you know, it doesn't really look like we should have been there in the first place. And uh, sad to say, but we lost a lot of men for nothing. Yeah. And it took me a while to finally come to terms with that. Sorry, thank you for the call. Yes. Very valuable contribution indeed. We will pause for the usual reasons and then directly back to the phones and to the email. And gentlemen, before we go back to the phones, let me read you uh, an email, rather on the lengthy side, but quite interesting, uh, from a Vietnam veteran. I spent a year in Vietnam in a non-combat role, but had the opportunity to talk extensively with dozens of combat soldiers from privates to captains. I detected an almost universal opinion among these soldiers that the South Vietnamese Army was completely worthless, while the VC and the NVA, that's the Viet Cong and the North Vietnam Army, were dedicated, and they spoke of them in almost reverential tones. This does not contribute to good morale, and it puts the lie to the idea that the U.S. Congress lost the war by, quote, starving the South Vietnamese of supplies. Another observation of my own was that the presence of hundreds of thousands of Western soldiers had a devastating effect on a traditional society. Most Vietnamese civilians with whom I came in contact were forced to play the black market to deal drugs or engage in prostitution in order to survive. This, this aspect of the war is often overlooked, but it was very critical to the war's ultimate outcome. Thank you for this opportunity to express my opinion. 
we thank you, sir, for the contribution. Um, the effect of the war upon the Vietnamese after we left, did it disrupt and disorganize their traditional society? I don't think there's any dispute at all about that. I mean, well, a serious statement of strategy was uh, one, uh, um, one of the civilian analysts in the Department of Defense actually said at one point in the way, we've corrupted the cities. Now perhaps we can corrupt the countryside as well. And, and, and the, the hopes that the more Vietnamese we corrupted, uh, the, the more uh, reliant upon, you know, uh, the, our, our, the more reliant upon uh, Western, uh, you know, the, the more lampreys we would have attached to the, the great but, white shark of the American military. But then communist, quasi-communist, Marxist, quasi-Marxist-Leninist uh, ideology as pushed uh, by the original uh, bunch from Hanoi, uh, that did not work to reorganize uh, Vietnamese society in a sort of um, a Western resistant mode. Um, do you mean after the war ended? I mean after the war. Well, down to the present they, time. They, they, you know, uh, the the communists embarked upon a re-education, a very long re-education process, yeah. and and it wasn't until the mid '80s where I think the party began to realize that in fact we have done what 30 years of warfare almost. Uh, failed, failed to do. We've almost completely destroyed this country. Um, I mean, it didn't help that there was a war with Cambodia and then a war with China so soon after. You know, the, the uh, Saigon. They had almost destroyed the country by virtue of what? The virtue of their disastrous economic policies yeah. and and same uh, as China. Same as same as China and uh, you know most of the Viet Cong uh, guys, uh, value decorated Viet Cong soldiers. Um, they were the leaders of the movement that really opposed uh, the, 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 you know, the cruel and paternalistic half-educated theorists, as one mm -hmm. of them called the, the, the communists who controlled the country. And, you know, to the, the Vietnamese communist credit, they, they, they really began to change things. Uh, that could have been the answer in the whole Cold War with regard to communist threat. Leave them alone and they'll collapse. Their societies will collapse. Well, the, to me, the great tragedy of Vietnam is that the communists who were sort of most flexible, least ideological, were the Vietnamese communists. They had the most inherent tension with the Chinese. Um, Ho Chi Minh was very much a pro-Soviet guy, but he he had his reservations about 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 the Soviet Union. And he was and Ho was very friend, very much inclined toward a friendly uh, view of the United States until uh, he was denied any any aid. So I, I think of all the places in the world where communism was a problem and where it was worth standing up to, Vietnam was probably the last of those places where where an armed incursion was an appropriate response to it, and the fact that we chose to fight the, the Vietnamese communi the communists who were probably most inclined toward taking a more neutral view of, of, uh, of the United States is, is one of the strange tragedies of the war. Gentlemen, let's go back to the phones, 591-7200, the number. You are next on the air. Good evening. Uh, good evening, Milk. I just uh, have one just sort of quick question. I'm just... Uh, I'm of the Vietnam era. I did not serve in Vietnam. We had a lottery. It was the only time I think I won a lottery, if that's the way you want to look <laughs> at it. But um, 175 was good enough to keep me out of it. And I don't. I used to feel guilty for years about it. And uh, I've just become, you know, in my late 50s, early 60s, come to grips with it. But the one thing I'm just curious, and I'd like their, their answers, is why do they think that Vietnam veterans, especially groups, are so obsessed with this POW MIA uh, issue uh, when there isn't even a, uh, a Vietnam veteran in the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier anymore. It was removed because the sister's DNA was able to link to it, 
and they were uh, gave the remains back to the family and buried it in Arlington. So there's not even uh, an MIA at the Tomb of the Unknown, and yet every Vietnam group flies that black flag with the POW MIA emblem. Well, let's ask the leader of one such Vietnam veterans group. I think the um, the circumstance relates to the isolationism that a lot of veterans uh, have felt. Um, a lot of veterans of our generation did not get involved with veteran service organizations until they were oftentimes in their 40s. I know that's the case for me. Um, we were thrust into a war as individuals, um, sent over there as replacements quite often, not part of uh, units as is being done today for the most part, and we returned home um, as individuals. And that's a uh, part of that, I think, was the circumstances of the politics of the time because it, during the period of the 1960s under, under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon, they really didn't want to take an entire unit of uh, regular stateside troops, reservists, active guards people, and thrust them into Southeast Asia because that brought an awful lot of scrutiny on what was going on over there. But they could individually pluck people from society put them into the military establishment, train them, send them overseas, and hopefully bring them back and woo them in again as individuals. So we went over, we were, there was always a sense of being isolated. Um, that, 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 that plays on you, and that, there, there's an effect. Is it likely that there are still uh, POWs or MIAs alive in or near Vietnam? There probably are are people who chose to stay in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, there's, a, there's a healthy degree of skepticism, but the, the sense of, of offering closure to the families whose, whose um, loved ones um, were never found, uh, anything that we can do to offer a, a resolution there, hence the cooperation that we've uh, attempted to uh, maintain with the authorities in Southeast Asia through the sites uh, this is an important part of, uh, I think, growing and collaborating. Um, they have as much to gain from information that we can provide about about um, battlefield locations of their dead as we have of recovering the remains of our former people. Let us thank the caller and proceed quickly to another. Hello, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, I was in country from uh, October 67 to 68. And I got a couple of questions. Uh, number one, has anybody ever really studied the different effects on the people that were in country in the different years they were there? Because I think that war, uh, depending on whether you were there in 65 or 72, it was a tremendously different experience. And there was certainly a different experience in this in the uh, civilian population back home. My other question. Well, explain uh, that. How does it vary uh, year by year? Well, the, the, the war was treated different. The anti-war movement was stronger in the different years. And in the later years, yes. In the later years, and I think there were a lot more draftees. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if anyone ever studied the, the effects, if there was more psychological problems earlier in the war or later in the war. Uh, more later, definitely. And uh, what you observe is correct. Uh, and, and I think there was a variation in experience be, depending on where you were in country, depending on mm -hmm. what your... Uh, job was over there. What's your, ex you know, immediate experience? But also definitely by year by year. Uh, when I was there, it was the uh, peak of the buildup, and it was also the uh, uh, 
beginning of the peak of the drug and alcohol problems and the uh, uh, racial conflict uh, that we didn't see as much uh, earlier on. Yeah, I, I agree with that. We had very little racial conflict, conflict and, and relatively little drugs in the years I was there. The other thing I wanted to say, and uh, the other gentleman touched on it briefly, I think that because of the fact that they rotated troops so often, there were many of us that did come home feeling with the, with the feeling that we left the job undone. And even in our civilian life for years, we would leave things undone, maybe have problems keeping a job because we were almost, it was, it, going to war is such a traumatic thing. And bringing you home, your friends are still there, the war's going on, mm -hmm. and the anti-war movement at home, it, it really did have an effect on an awful, yeah. awful lot of us. That's a very interesting and important point. And there's a related point that I've heard made by some military psychology types. I remember one particular conference where somebody gave a very impassioned paper, and he said we were just so stupid, they were just so stupid in rotating individuals rather than rotating whole units. You break the morale. You can't build morale in a unit if people keep getting replaced and going home and new ones coming in whom you don't know. That's to build exactly military right. morale, the unit has to remain a unit. If it's at the front or if it's shipped back home or if it's rear uh, echelon, but it has to be an intact unit. The strongest supportive force I think we had over there was the uh, regard we held for each other. Yeah. For our yeah, so fellow soldiers. That's probably true in military life eternally, don't you think? Yeah. I, I, the group. It's true in Caesar's legions as much as it is for the 1st Division. Correct. And the other thing uh, that you mentioned that's a good point, I think, that we didn't have 10 years of experience in Vietnam. We had one year 10 times. So we had to relearn re the same yeah. lessons over and over. Well, sir, thank you. Very excellent contribution. Thank you. I'm pleased to have heard from you. There are now one or two lines available, 591-7200. If you've been trying to reach us, make another quick try. Somebody will get through. Let me read you this email. Please have your guest discuss the Agent Orange issue, i.e., the spreading of some 26 million gallons of almost pure dioxin around the various military bases in South Vietnam. Most of the Agent Orange was spread around bases like Long Bean, uh, with the burden of exposure being shouldered by the rear echelon personnel. Is that true? The Agent Orange uh, campaign was a, a campaign actually for defoliation around the, around the large bases and also along the roads and the, uh, uh, the, the transportation infrastructure of the country to cut back so that there was less of a risk of ambush. And uh, it is true that the, um, the, the rear area bases oftentimes were exposed to it, whereas if you were in the um, up, up country, it, well, they would, they would take out uh, certain areas that had a lot of canopy uh, over top in the, uh, in the jungle. But, and I, in my own personal experience, I've lost friends too who were exposed to Agent Orange and developed cancer and diabetes after that. And they were, they were in the rear the entire time that they were stationed in country. Um, so it's a, it's a credible issue. It still and plagues Vietnam today, uh, incidentally, the, the Vietnamese people themselves. They're still, and I think the one issue of the war that really gets Vietnamese people's goats is the, the lingering environmental and health problems caused by the, the, the herbicides and, and defoliants that were used. I wasn't a strong believer, but uh, whenever I get together with my, the guys that I served with over there, we all seem to have the same medical problems. And, uh, Such as? Um, diabetes, uh, prostate cancer, <laughs> peripheral neuropathy, mm. heart disease. 
and and these are supposedly at a higher incidence among Vietnam veterans, occurring at a higher incidence. And the further tragedy, not only for the Vietnamese, as well as our own veterans, is the fact that it moves through generations. You know, mm -hmm. our our children, our children's children, are on, will show trace evidence of of those toxins. We uh, are due for a quick update. A quick reintroduction of our guests. They are Tom Bissell, who is the author of the new book, The Father of All Things, a Marine, His Son, and the Legacy of Vietnam, reporting a trip he made with his veteran father back to Vietnam. Uh, Dr. Douglas Bay is a psychiatrist in private practice down in Normal, Illinois, and he was division psychiatrist for the Army's 1st Division, the 1st Infantry Division, the Big Red One, uh, during a portion of the Vietnam War. His own memoir of the Vietnam War is just recently published, titled Wizard Six, a combat psychiatrist in Vietnam, and that's published by Texas A&M Press. And Brian Mulcrone is uh, busy in uh, IT work in and around Chicago, and is these days the president of the local chapter of the Vietnam Veterans of America. He served in Vietnam from May of 70 to June of 71. 5917200 is our number, and we go to the next caller. Good evening. Good evening. Yes, sir. Yes, I served in Vietnam as a uh, first lieutenant uh, in the field artillery, as a forward observer, aerial observer, battery commander up in the Central Highlands. And uh, I know of a, uh, a medic who lives about 30 miles north of me who unfortunately had to uh, rescue some of our soldiers from uh, Doc To, who received a direct hit from an NVA rocket and is suffering post-traumatic stress syndrome. So I can appreciate what he might be going through. And uh, I, I went over as a unit. My unit went 28 days across the uh, South Pacific, and I can appreciate a, a previous caller saying the difference between going over as a unit as opposed to being flown over individually. It does make a huge difference in the complexion of the whole workforce. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think that's a very important point, and I think I was reasserting that point myself. I heard it from a number of military psychology people specializing in training issues. And also one of the important lessons that came out of Vietnam, and I think it was borne out by um, the, uh, the you know, some of the officers who served there, for example, Colin Powell and Norman Schwarzkopf, they, they recognized this when they were constituting um, and reorganizing and, and, and the uh, the arms, particularly the army, because during the first Gulf War, you'll note that the buildup was unit by unit. This was uh, this was an important issue for morale and unit cohesion. Um, there was no loss in terms of training, as because they had they were they were together. They had been together. Um, so the lesson of Vietnam with regards to the individual sense of, of replacement of personnel. Um, it was, it was a tough lesson for us to absorb, but I think the benefactors of that were that it was the next generation of veterans who fought in 1990-91 uh, against Saddam Hussein. Our thanks to the caller, and, you know, I haven't asked you to draw a parallel between that war and the current war, though it's an obvious question, and I guess I raise it now, uh, though uh, with some trepidation. Uh, do you see similar patterns in... Are lessons learned in the first war relevant, that is, in the earlier Vietnam War, relevant to this one? 
Well, I, th I think there are some parallels. The uh, the uh, oppressive climatic conditions, um, the uh, uh, fact that you can't tell the uh, good guys from the bad guys very easily. Uh, there aren't clear boundaries uh, as far as where the front is. Um, there are long periods of boredom interspersed with uh, periods of terror. Um, on the other hand, uh, some of the differences that I wonder about, uh, in Vietnam, we were, uh, <clears throat> we had difficulty communicating with home. It took a long time to communicate. And we sort of, uh, as we got off the plane, there were two lines of guys who were waiting to get on our plane to go home. And this, and we had to walk through this gauntlet while they would uh, yell at us that uh, you're going home in a body bag, kill yourself now, and so on. Hmm. So we were sort of initiated in the country with the idea that uh, we, we might not make it and just detach yourself from the world, as we referred to uh, uh, home. And uh, uh, whereas the guys now, I think, in Iraq have instantaneous communication with home through uh, satellite uh, phones and through the Internet. And I wonder if this doesn't make it more difficult for them. They also are exposed to these horrendous wounds that we mentioned earlier. Uh, and we self-medicated with alcohol and drugs. Now, I don't know if that, in some cases that was a negative, but in some cases maybe it was a positive. I'm not sure that the guys in Iraq can do that. I don't know how they, what they use for coping. Uh, I did read that the uh, most prescribed drug in Iraq was Prozac. Uh, so there must be, a, and also the suicide rate was, was high in Iraq. So uh, there must be uh, uh, significant psychiatric problems. Tom Bissell, your thoughts on the same? Well, I think there are some, you know, parlor game, facile, shallow comparisons that you can make that both saw their major escalations by a Texan decider-type president that both the Department of Defense in both wars was presided over by um, a kind of polymathic uh, business-type leader who planned to revolutionize and, and revitalize the U.S. military. Um, both wars entered into with what came to be seen as, you know, a pretty criminal sense of overconfidence about, and, uh, about the simplicity of what they're actually going to try to do and a sense of how uh, an expectation that was unrealistic combined with a, with a refusal to really wrestle with how complicated this was going to be. Those are all things that I think they have in common, some more serious than others. But the nature of the enemy, I think, is a completely different thing. In particular, the Vietnamese, one of the reasons I think the war movement got so large is because you could make an argument that the Viet Cong were, in fact, an indigenous uh, nationalist movement that happened to be controlled by, by Hanoi, yes. But during the war, I think that was less clear. We, we now know that the, the, the Viet Cong was both an indigenous nationalist movement and a, a tool of the, of the Communist Party. But I think the nature of the war in Vietnam created a sense of, um, created an ability to look at it and really see the United States as, as, as in the wrong and on the wrong side of this question. However, I think it's a lot harder to make that argument about the Iraqi insurgency, which seems to be based on uh, nothing even nearly so noble as nationalist aspiration. You know, it seems to be made based on a lot of tribalist score settling and stuff like that. And, and I, I think Iraq had an endgame. Two 
countries fighting it out in the streets of the capital city with one country running up the flag of uh, its own flag up the enemy's army's flagpole. Uh, Iraq, as far as I can tell, has no end game, and it's a lot harder to imagine how this is all going to, to settle itself out. And, and I think the thing that the determinative difference, the, the determinative difference between these two wars is that very fact, mm -hmm. that uh, one seemed to have an end, communist victory, whereas what is going to be won or lost in Iraq right now? I'm not sure there's a, any answer to that question at all right now, four years on. A de representative democracy? That seems hard to believe at this point. So I don't even know what we're fighting for at this point. Well, a secularized regime rather than a, uh, uh, a theologically dominated one and uh, do dominated by a brand of theology which uh, brings out, I would say, the worst in the Islamic tradition. I would agree. And those stakes are pretty high, I would think. Not merely for Iraq, but then for all of the rest of the Middle East. With that, gentlemen, we'll pause. Last round of commercials, then back to the phones. And we return to Messrs. Bissell, Bay, and Mulcrone, and back to your calls on 591-7200. Good evening. Uh, hello. How are you doing? Fine, sir. Uh, uh, I was driving along the freeway here in Georgia, and I was listening to your Chicago station, and I, I want to... I have some basic disagreements with uh, some several things that uh, have been said here tonight. All right, let's hear it. Uh, well, uh, to uh, explain what I, where I'm coming from, I was a helicopter pilot, a helicopter gunship pilot, uh, also in the Highlands, uh, in Kantoum, Vietnam. Uh, and I, in my experience there, we had uh, a fighting mission uh, that uh, where we took... Um, people uh, across the border into um, uh, Laos to, uh, for the purpose of, uh, of uh, reconnaissance there. And uh, there was many uh, uh, instances of bravery, and these soldiers fought very well. And uh, the, the denigration that I see of, um, of the mission that, that we worked on uh, was um, Sir, you are, you are you're, you're on the road right now, are you? I pulled over to use the phone safely. Okay, I just wanted to make sure you were okay. I'm fine, thank you. I see. <laughs> is, is, that a, is, that a, is that a police person? That was a, a state patrolman, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, getting back to what I was trying to say here, I, when she came up, I kind of lost my train of thought. But, but the um, the, there's been some research done by historians. One uh, Midwestern University, uh, Western University, I think University of Kansas or somewhere in that vicinity, mm -hmm. uh, that he put out a letter that uh, basically it, uh, he put out a statement. And it can be found on the Internet if you look. I just, I'm not at my computer right now, so I can't call it up. But uh, he... Uh, Dispels many of the statistics uh, that, uh, such as the death of at age 19. Most of the soldiers died at eight, nine, age 19. Uh, also, the uh, breakdown the, uh, that the black soldier took an un, uh, uh, unduly large brunt of the death and injuries over there. Uh, many of these statistics that people 
were fed by the press turned out to be totally wrong. Uh, and, and this has been repeated and repeated over and over again. The, the post-traumatic stress issue, I'm a uh, Vietnam Helicopter Pilots Association member, and we have thousands of members, and very, very few of them any indicate or they're, they're successful. I make a six-figure income. I have gone through Vietnam. I was there in the shooting. Yeah. I fired thousands of bullets. Well, sir, we can... Had, and had them shot back yeah. at me. We get the and picture. What you're saying is you had a good war. Uh, well, let's, let's get no, some... What I'm saying is the, the All right. discussions like tonight have uh, denigrated the veteran and that war and, and the behaviors in that war and unduly. I don't think Very anyone here is, is trying to denigrate the veterans, but let's get some further response. Uh, Brian Mukbron. Well, in fairness, 2.7 million American veterans served in uniform in Vietnam, and statistically, 97% um, of those veterans were honorably discharged, and 91% of them say that they were glad they served. I'm, I count myself in that in the category. And and you're right about the notion that there's there's some myth about the the young age of the fatalities, whereas uh, the average age of the fatality uh, was actually age 22. Whereas I think in World War II the average age was around 26, so there's there's been a lot of uh, misunderstandings through the years. Um, to the point about the the number of uh, people who died based upon race, 86% of those who died in Vietnam were Caucasian. Only 12% were black, and 1.2% were other races. So um, you're, you're right that there's been perhaps too much of a um, misunderstanding through the years, but. Statistically, we can we can we can bear out the points that you made. Further comment from John Bissell. Uh, there's a long section of my book where I actually address all this and everything that the caller had just said is is in fact true, which brought, uh, Brian just backed up. Um, and the fact is, is uh, the idea of the Vietnam veteran is such a wildly uh, inaccurate one in many ways. And my father, the who was in some ways a troubled Vietnam veteran, when I say this, people imagine this guy like out in the woods with a bow and arrow hunting, you know, uh, hunting pigs and trouble. But in fact, my father wears a tie. He's a banker. He's a pillar of our community. And, and yet, when you get close to him, uh, like I think you get close to many war vets, you, you begin to see that there is a large amount of pain and, and damage that has been done to him. So I would say that I was, I'm shocked to hear that the caller assumed that anyone here is denigrating uh, the veterans. That was certainly not my intent. Um, and the fact is that a lot of the statistics about the war that are used, I have the line in the book, is that a survey is not a mind and a statistic is not reality. And between these views of Vietnam veterans is, is this army of uh, messed up uh, casualties or as a can-do, super productive group of, uh, of uh, you know, junior executives, I think the reality is between these two. And, sir, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to make that clarification. And drive All carefully right. down there in Georgia. I will. Thank All you. right. Good night for now. Quickly to another, here is the next caller. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, I am a veteran from Vietnam, served 1970-71 in the Central Highlands. And I had a first question, then I'll tell you what my duty was. My question was that uh, would we have been able to bring the North to their knees with a bombing campaign you know, reminiscent of Dresden and Berlin and Tokyo a la uh, Curtis LeMay? Would the Chinese have allowed us to do that? 
LeMay's great quotation was, let's bomb them into the Stone Age. Oh. Well, I, I would ask, um, <clears throat> at what point defending the imperiled freedom of the people of South Vietnam became worth annihilating North Vietnam? Um, if that were decided to be an appropriate way to fight this war, then uh, we were opposing um, a ruthless monolithic form of governance, communism. If you have to, to win a war, you have to become, you know, the moral equal of this vicious ideology, then what are you really fighting for, is what I would say. Well, I mean, that's what we did in Japan and Tokyo. That's a different kind of war. There's a, the wars in which national survival were at stake, and I'm not certain what was at stake in Vietnam in, in, as far as American survival. Uh, I just think it's it's a completely inappropriate uh, way to have fought a war that had... And in fact, North, North Vietnam was bombed uh, uh, repeatedly. About 7% 7 of the total bombs that landed on Vietnam ran on North Vietnam. It wasn't the Dresden campaign, no, but um, I, you know, the, 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 the loving caress of rolling thunder was certainly uh, not a, nothing that the people of North Vietnam relished. And in fact, the North Vietnamese fully anticipated on, on receiving uh, firebomb cities, and they planned for it on several occasions. They evacuated uh, the, their, their largest cities. They waited for it. Um, I don't think that would have stopped them. Okay. All right, thank you. Uh, we thank you, sir, for the call. I have a quick email here. Uh, who, this fellow says, the book that the chap from Georgia was talking about is Stolen Valor by Burkett. I don't know that. Do we? I know that book. Yes, huh? Yeah. Um, and uh, this caller is listening to us in Dayton, Ohio. Let's work in one or two more very quick calls. Here is another. Hello, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, I was uh, in Vietnam in, in 70 and 71. I was a staff sergeant in charge of a infantry platoon. I really believe that uh, the differences between World War One and World War Two, uh, Vietnam and um, Iraq, are the media. That's the big differences in the wars. The media could not, was not sending the war home to the people and giving, putting a face on the war, their face that they wanted the people to see in World War One, They weren't allowed to. Quite and so. I think, I think we would all agree with that, sir. I wish we had more time to develop the thought, but I think we've already touched upon that earlier well, tonight. Someone said if, if Normandy was filmed, we would have uh, not gone ahead mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah, the it's public at home. It's filmed later by Steven Spielberg. Right, right. Who makes it look pretty dreadful. Yes, but I mean yeah. at the time, yeah, probably. Gentlemen, we're almost out of time. Final thoughts. Um, based upon the work you've done with the two books at hand or based upon our conversation tonight? Now let's do a quick round. First to Tom Bissell. Um, well, I just wanted to thank these two uh, wonderful men that I got to sit here tonight and discuss this war, which... I am uh, merely a student of and not a participant in, and uh, I, I was, it was a pleasure to sit here and take part in this discussion. And Dr. Douglas Day. Well, we were here to discuss Tom's book primarily. And, and your book, sir. And, well, uh, primarily Tom's, and, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm a fan of his now, having read it, and I think it, it makes a great contribution, and uh, that especially to help families and uh, uh, perhaps the children of uh, veterans who served there. I'd like to borrow a, a note from a gentleman by the name of Michael Norman when he talks about veterans, and I think about veterans, this is something I share. I know them in no way I know mm. other men. 
I have never given anyone such trust as I have veterans. They were willing to guard something more precious than my life. They would have carried my reputation, the memory of me. That sums it up, I think, when veterans speak of one another. Very nicely said. And with that, we wind down for the evening with thanks again to Brian Mulcrone, Dr. Douglas Bay, and to Tom Bissell.